0: Nobody in my family is a Christian. I'm sorry about that. Have you tried talking to them? Yeah, I was going to tell my sister about Jesus one time, and she was downstairs using the computer. So I went down, and I was going to tell her about Jesus. But all that came out was, can I use the computer? I have a Bible verse about that. Would you like me to go get it? Yeah, that'd be a great help. Adrian, did you hear that Kevin just wrecked a brand new Honda? No. Oh man, he had it coming. I knew this was gonna happen. He so deserved it. He is a terrible driver. He is awful. I think it's a bunch of when he bought that car. All he did was talk about that car all the time. It was ridiculous. I'm glad. I hear you on that one, huh? Well, anyway, I have that Bible verse for you. Second Timothy four two. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Okay. Amen. Open your Bibles to the book of James. Anybody know what chapter? One. Hey, you guys are cooking now. James chapter one. We're going to read verses one through five. Can you believe that? Huh? All at once, man. I Hopefully you can contain it. I know, it's going to be pretty exciting. James chapter one, uh, verses one through five. When you get there, say moo. Moo. Got a couple moos. Still a couple moos working on, working on some moos, chewing on the moo, moo there, moo, moo everywhere. All right, we're good there, we're mooed. All right, verse 1 says this, James, he's a what? He's a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, of the early church, as we saw before in the context, scattered among the nations. Now, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. But here's the good news. If any of you, you're going through this trial, if you lack wisdom, he should ask who? God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will, no doubt about it, it will be given to him. Give it up for Joe. Joe's on the, the ball here. James chapter 1 verse uh, 3. Uh, five there, and uh, but it will be given to him as the great news, This is great. Wait till we get into some Greek words here. I'm excited about it, okay? But again, just to grab the context, the context, what is the purpose of this book? It is an acid test, as we saw before. And what was the first acid test that James gives out? Trials is the issue. How do you respond in trials? Now, the purpose of the acid test is, again, this is the first book that we're aware of in the New Testament. And so as the world uh, church finally goes out in the world, the last thing that God wants is fake Christians giving the world the false impression of Jesus Christ or a false gospel. So James, right out of the gates, puts out this acid test. And the first acid test that people need to pass is trials. Do you hold on to Jesus Christ in your trials? If you don't and you walk away, the Bible's very clear. I'm sorry, you're not a Christian. Okay, But for the Christian, because we're going to go through trials, saved and unsaved, he says, here's the good news, though. Not just you're able to hold on to Jesus, but you can hold on, and that's the key theme, is with joy. As we saw before, it's not just any kind of joy. It's a true joy from God. It really works. It's internal, regardless of what happens outside of us, and it's constant. You can literally have a constant joy. And we saw that, that that's before. He says there's a couple things that we need to do if we're going to uh, experience that. We need to, uh, first of all, look forward to the good in the trial. Okay, was the first thing. Look forward to the good in the trial. We saw tons of great reasons why God allows difficulties. The second one is let the good purpose be finished in the trial. We don't resent this thing. We need to submit to it is the idea. Let it finish its work. Don't miss the blessing. Don't take a lap. Anybody tired of taking laps? Okay, so get the lesson, the good lesson that God wants you uh, the first time. Okay, milk it for all it's worth. Okay? The third way was to let God give you his good wisdom in the trial. And this is what we saw last time. The scripture very clearly says if you're lacking wisdom in the trial, not only can you have this joy, but in, during that process, if you just don't know what to do, what do you do? It said there very clearly, you need to go to God. And that's what our study was last week. That's the problem. We don't go to God, do we, in our trials? Society and our flesh has tricked us into going to our feelings. And that's how we base our decisions on how to make it through this trial. Or we go to our friends, and that adds a whole other layer of problems. Or we go to Freudian psychology. We listen to man instead of God. And yet God is the one who is the ultimate source of wisdom. Okay, God, listen, is not going to lead us astray. Did you know that? God never gives bad advice. So why would he make an emphasis here? When you're in a trial, I want you to come to me. In fact, again, it said continually go to God. Why? Why? Because if you don't go to God, you're going to get bad advice. Bad advice leads to bad behavior. Bad behavior leads to a bad witness. And what's the whole purpose of this book? So that we could have that joy in our trials to be a positive witness for Jesus. So don't not go to God. Go to God. Get the great advice. He'll never steer you wrong. And keep being that positive witness for Jesus. Now we come to the fourth thing that we need to do. If we're going to have that constant joy, and it's not just about us. I do believe that God wants us to experience that joy because he loves us as his children, okay? But again, what's the purpose of having that constant joy? It's to be a witness, okay, as we are scattered out into the world. And the first thing we need to do is to, whatever we do, do not question God's character. Do not question God's character in the trial, okay? He says there, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, Key words here. Who gives what? Generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. Now listen to what the original Greek says. This is cool. Let him, the person going through the trial, keep on presenting his request in the presence of the giving God who gives to all with simplicity and without reserve and with, he does not reproach the recipient with any manifestation of displeasure or regret. Isn't that awesome? I mean, think about this. What he's saying here is, listen, did you know that God is not tired of you and I coming to him for wisdom? Okay, that's good news. He not only wants you and I to come to him for wisdom, he never ever gets tired of it. We don't get on his nerves. Okay, he wants us to come uh, to ask for wisdom. And I don't care if it's 100,000 times a day. He doesn't say, oh, no, not you again, Mickey. I already helped you earlier today. What are you doing? We never get that from God. The scripture literally says he's not displeased with us. He not only wants us to come to him, he says to continually come to him, and now he expresses his character. He's good. He's generous, man. He wants you to come to him. He wants to give it to you generously. Now, that's an amazing word. I love this word, okay? Uh, The word there, generous, in the Greek, is literally this Greek word, hoplos. Let's say that, right? And what that is, is it's an anointed bunny rabbit, and that's what you focus on to find your center. No, that's new age. Okay. haplas. Uh, okay. It literally means this. It means unconditionally. This is God's character. When you come to him and ask for wisdom in the trial, he's a haplos God. He, he unconditionally without bargaining. Well, here's what you want, but I'm really, oh, no well, okay, maybe I'll give you this. No, without bargaining generously and freely. In other words, the word is telling us that God doesn't just give us wisdom, but he pours it out, man, big time. I mean, bubbling over big time, okay? Uh, uh, says this, Proverbs 2.6 says this, the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Listen, here's the words. He stores up, okay, is the phrase that's used there. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. The picture that we have is, listen, God doesn't just know all things. Of course, he's God. He's not just the ultimate source of wisdom. Of course, he's God. But the picture that's used here is that God has piles and piles and piles of wisdom. And, listen to his character, he loves nothing more than to dispense it to his kids who would just ask. That's all you got to do. And he'll unload it on you. His character is revealed here. He's not going to hold back on you, Christian, when you ask for wisdom, especially in a trial. Hello. He's not going to play cat and mouse with you. He's not going to tease you. He's not trying to torture you. He says, just come to me. Keep coming to me, man. I never get tired of it. I love you. You're my child. Woo-hoo. What? What? Excuse me? This was the hundred and ninth time today? Yeah. Keep it coming. What do you need? I'll give it to you. He's the hop God. Okay, why? Because unlike man, God does not get annoyed when we ask for something repeatedly. Now, we do that, don't we? Let's flip it around with parents. Your kid keeps coming and keep asking. And every single time, we don't lose our patience. We're just, yeah, sure, come on. Oh, what? another conversation? I'd love that. right? No, we, we sometimes get annoyed. One man states this. He says, God gives to us Sincerely. He gives without hesitation. He gives without mental reservation. He gives holding nothing back. He doesn't begrudge. He doesn't complain like parents do. He doesn't say, you know, this is getting a little too much. All I ever do is bail you out. Isn't that good news that God, our heavenly father, never treats us that way ever? And it's all there for the taking. He says his commitment is to supply all the necessary wisdom that his people need to deal with the issues of life, and to give it generously to the fullest, never at any point without reproach. He's never bugged by us. We don't have to hear that speech that we heard from our father. You're not worthy of this. You're undeserving. God just gives it, and he gives it to all men generously. This is a marvelous promise, so if you're going through a trial, and you're trying to sort it out, and you go to the word, the Bible, you go to God in prayer, and you ask him for wisdom, he is going to pour wisdom out on you without reservation and without reproach. Psalm 81.10 says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. He says this. He says, that's how God is. He doesn't say, here's a morsel, you undeserving little wretch. He says, here, open your mouth as wide as you can. And I'm going to dump a pile of wisdom, man. You're going to have more than you know what to do with. He says, this is really calling us. This kind of, remember, we're coming off of verse four. Okay, rolling into verse 5 and the first thing he says in the context here in verse 5, is he says, if you need wisdom, where do you go to? Go to God. And so this is the back half of that verse. And so this is what he says. This is calling us to find our resources above, not below. And that's our problem, isn't it? Our resources above, not below to a life of prayer. Going to God is the source of everything is what we need in the midst of our trials. Why? Because God is good. This is his character. We're his kids. He loves us. He doesn't get tired of us. He's hot We can go to God anytime without reserve, no regret, listen, no lectures. It's all there for the taking. No stinking wonder the enemy gets us to go to our feelings, our friends, and Freudian psychology first. Because the last thing he wants is for us to get all the wisdom that we could ever need and then some. With no lectures and no reserve, no regret from God. Because that's what we need. Okay, now again, when he does that to you, what do you think it helps to maintain? And joy. That's right, Bobby, joy. It was almost coming. I was there. Joy, right? So again, it's not just knowing that there's good in trial, but God gives you wisdom in your trial so that you can keep that joy going. Because remember, it's not just about us. It's about being a what? a positive witness for Jesus Christ. God is a hapless gog. He's not a horrible ogre, and you don't need to question his character. Listen, when you're going through a trial, God is not going to pour shampoo on your face. See, that's what a lot of people do. They think about God. Well, he's going through this trial. Maybe he's just, Christians sometimes can kind of have this mentality. Well, He's just trying to see what I can go through. He's just trying to, maybe, maybe I did something. He's just trying to torture me. He's, maybe he's just, what are you doing questioning God's character? He's hapless. He's generous, man. He loves you. He'll never pour shampoo on your face. You come to him for something? He's not like that. One lady, she shares this analogy. She says, when my son was a toddler, washing his hair was always a problem. He would sit in the bathtub while I put shampoo in his hair. And then when I poured on water to make it lather, he would tip his head down, excuse me, so that the shampoo would run into his eyes and it would cause pain and tears. I explained to him that if he would just look straight up at me, he could avoid getting shampoo in his face. And he would agree. And then as soon as I started to rinse his hair, his fear would overcome his trust and he would look down again. And so the shampoo once again ran to his face and there'd be more tears. She said, during one of our sessions, while I was trying to convince him to lift his head up and just trust me, she said, I suddenly realized how this situation was like my relationship with God. I know God is my father and I'm sure he loves me. And I believe that I trust him, but sometimes in a difficult situation, a trial, I panic and turn my way, eyes away from him. This never solves the problem. I just become more afraid as the shampoo, if you will, begins to blind me. She said, even though I knew uh, my son knew I loved him, he had a hard time trusting me in a panicky situation. I knew I could protect him, but convincing him of that wasn't easy especially when all he could see was water coming down. His, listen, his lack of trust hurt me, but it hurt him more. He was the one who had to suffer the needless pain. She said, I'm, I'm sure that my lack of trust hurts God very much, but how much more does it hurt me? Often in the Bible, we are told to lift our head up to God when problems come. We, God knows how to protect us, and if we'll just remember to listen to him, we'll be fine. She says, but now when I find myself in a situation where it would be easy to panic, I picture my son sitting in the bathtub, looking up at me, learning to trust me. And then I ask God, what should I do? Sometimes the answer may seem scary, but one thing I'm sure of, God will never pour shampoo in my face. Why? Because what kind of a God is he? Hello, he's hot blast. He's generous, he's good, he's not a horrible ogre. And so when you need wisdom, he is not gonna pour shampoo in your face, he's gonna pour wisdom in your face, okay? Which is a good thing, no tears, lots of joy with that, okay? Wouldn't it be awesome, no matter what the trial, no matter what the situation, you literally had at your disposal the ultimate source of wisdom to do the exact, right, perfect thing every single time. Wouldn't that be awesome? We have it. Isn't that the weird irony? We have it, and yet we don't take advantage of it. And so we see here, God not only says the first half, come to me, constantly go to me. Don't go to your feelings, don't go to your friends, don't go to secular psychology, come to me. And then it's almost like he's having to go out of his way to entice us, oh, by the way, I'm generous. I mean, he doesn't even have to do that. He's, I'm, I'm generous, I, I love you, I don't get tired, of you come to me, and I'm gonna, I want to give you that which is good. It's it's a strange thing. So come to God. This is what he's saying. Come to God, James says, anytime you want without reserve. Listen, no fear, no hesitation. God loves you and he wants to pour out his wisdom on you. And knowing that keeps the joy going, keeps the joy going in your trial. Listen, it keeps the positive witness for Jesus going, doesn't it? That's the context. Now we come to the second half of that. And that is to not only not doubt or question God's character, but whatever you do is do not, okay, doubt God. Okay, and specifically, don't doubt God's ability uh, to do this, okay? He's not going to say, oh, God, you really have so enticed me. Uh, You said that I could come to you, and I should come to you, and when I come to you, you're going to be so generous, but maybe you won't. Don't do that. Because you reap what you sow, okay? Let me read to that uh, to you. He says this, he says, now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all, without finding fault, it will be given to him. But when he asks, is what he's saying here, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he's going to receive anything from the Lord, because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Let me read to you the original Greek. But let him be presenting his request in a trusting attitude. Okay, God doesn't lie. Just trust him. He, not only come to him and he's good and he's gonna pour it out on you. Woo! Trust him. Don't 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 call him a liar. Trust him. Okay? Not in an expression of that hesitates or vacillates between faith and unbelief, for that the person who vacillates between faith and unbelief is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, for let not that individual be supposing he shall receive anything from the presence of the Lord. Listen, being a dubious, undecided man, vacillating in all his, his ways. In other words, he's saying, listen, God is supremely wise and he's supremely generous. That's his character. He is so worthy of our complete trust. When has God ever done anything wrong? Never is the key word there. God doesn't lie like man. He doesn't sin like man. God always only does that which is right. That's why he's holy and righteous. He only does that which is right. So here's what he said. He is supremely wise. He's completely worthy of our trust. Why in the world would you, and he's asking you to come to him. He's telling you he's going to pour it out on you. Why in the world would you doubt him at that point? That he's not going to do it. That he's not going to fulfill your request. I call these no-brainer prayers. You know, people always say, Pastor Bill, I don't know what God's called me to do. Just as a Christian, you know, how how has he gifted me? What does he he save me for? Because the Bible says that God saves us, Ephesians 2.10, not only 8 and 9 by grace through faith, but he saved us to do those good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. And so sometimes it's a logical, great thing, especially early on as a Christian. God, what have you saved me for? What have you gifted me for? What do you want me to do for you by your spirit right here? And then it's like, I I don't know if I'll ever find out. (laughs) What? It's a no-brainer prayer. And I say this, listen, if anybody wants you to know God's will, don't you think it's God? If if you don't know what God's called you to do, and he says, I got good things for you to do, don't you think when he's asked, he's going to tell you? That's what James is saying. I I call it a no-brainer prayer. God, should I take this job or not? Do you think God's concerned about where you work? Do you think God's concerned about where you live? Do you think God's concerned about your... He's concerned about everything. And he's got a plan through everything. So when you come to him and you have a question, you don't think he's not going to answer you or that he's going to steer you wrong? That's what he's saying. This is crazy. Why would you doubt him? God never steers us wrong. The reason why we get into worse situations is because we don't go to him or we don't listen to him and or obey him. But God's not going to steer us wrong. And so that's what James says. Don't, don't no, 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 no. Don't go there. Don't ever doubt God's ability. All right, let me give you a couple things. As to why that's true. God, did you know that God knows everything before it even happens? And now listen, this this is who we're coming to. This is the one who has this kind of ability. I mean, if you're going to go for advice, this is what God has, okay? Isaiah 42, verse eight through nine says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Listen, before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Well, how does he do that? Well, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights in our intro to apologetics, you'll see that God lives in the realm of eternity above and beyond time. Time itself is a created thing, just like space and matter. So God's above and beyond that. He could see the beginning from the end anywhere on time all the time. So of course he knows things before they happen. Wouldn't that be a great thing? God, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know where you're going to have me live or work or witness. Do you think he might know? So why would you go anywhere else? And then when you come to him and go, I, I don't know if he will. Don't doubt. Don't do that. Now you're questioning, I'd say, his character and his ability. It's crazy. Uh, God assures us that there's no such thing as chance. Proverbs uh, 16, 9 and 33 says this, A man's mind plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps and makes them sure. The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is wholly of the Lord. And even the events that seem accidental are really ordered of him. That's pretty cool. God knows everything, period. First John three nineteen through 20. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence, God's presence. Okay, whenever our hearts condemn us, I don't know what to do, what's this? Rest. Why? Because God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Wow, so if he knows everything, why would we go anywhere else? That would be kind of goofy. He knows everything from the beginning of the world. Acts 15, 18. No unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. He knows every hair on our head. Matthew 10, 29 through 30 uh, says this. And he says, uh, and what's the price of two sparrows? Okay, uh, one copper coin, but not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it and the very hairs on your hand are all numbered. Okay, he knows everything we're ever going to do. Psalm 139, verse 16. But with your own eyes, God, you saw my body being formed. Listen, even before I was born, you had written in your book everything I would do. Isn't that awesome? I often reflect on, these are called God's sovereignty passages. Okay? His uh, providence passages. Okay? And I often reflect on this kind of stuff because I'm going like, you know, you think, well, man, I hope I'm not messing. Listen, I make my plans, but who's ordering my steps? God, praise God, there's security in that. Okay, and I'm sitting there going, man, I, I don't know, you know, but you know, God knows everything I'm going to do before I even do it. Isn't that amazing? So to me, I translate that and go, you know what? I may not have all the answers right now, okay? But uh, life is going exactly according to plan. It's just God's plan, not necessarily mine. But did you know his plans are better than ours? His thoughts are higher than our thoughts? His ways are better than our ways, right? Okay, so when I submit to his plan, hey, have a great day. Did you know that you're not going to thwart the plan of God? Is anybody bigger than God? Are you going to take over God? Are you going to force God to do something he doesn't want to do? No, he knows everything that we were going to do. One more, he knows how long we're going to live. Love this, Job 14.5. You, God, have decided the length of our lives and you know how many months we will live and we're not given a minute longer. Born on time, die on time. It's not by chance. Okay, now here's the whole point. If God knows things before they even happen, and he assures us there's no such thing as chance, and he knows everything, including everything from the the beginning of the world, including every hair on your head, and including how much time we have left to live, down to the exact second, why in the world would we go anywhere else for wisdom? And listen, why in the world would we doubt his ability to give us that wisdom? It's insane. It's foolish. It's attacking God's character, his ability. Listen, no wonder James says, if you do do that, What's the payoff for that? You're tossed to and fro. You're vacillating. You're going back and forth. You're unstable. You have no joy. You're doubting God. The question, the issue in this text is, it's not that God can't supply. It's his child's lack of faith. And I'm telling you, folks, this is the very same tool that Satan has used from the very get-go of his encounter with man. It's called doubt. Open your Bibles real quick to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. It's the same goofball tactic. He uses it today so that we lose that joy, we lose that peace, and once that goes down the tubes, folks, we lose our witness. Okay? And we're just as crazy, just as frantic as the rest of the world, and yet somehow we're saying that Jesus is better. Okay? God wants us to maintain it. Don't listen to the enemy. Okay? To down. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, What's the first thing out of his mouth? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What's the first thing he did? What is that? What is is he putting in the mind of Eve that had never been there before ever in mankind's creation? Doubting Doubting God. The first thing. And then when you start to chew it, well, maybe. Well, you know, I've never thought about it like that before. In fact, I've never had a thought like that before. But the dirty deed was done. He got, him to, got her to doubt. I said, well, yeah, we may eat from the fruit, this tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit uh, that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch or you're going to die. And then so step two, you will not surely die. So he starts with doubt and then he moves on. Once the person takes the bait, what does he do now? He calls God a liar. Doubt first, start, uh, and then calls God a liar, for God knows, he says when you eat him, your eyes are going to be open. He's holding something out on you, man, and you're going to be like God, knowing good from evil. And then she blew it. She took the bait. Same goofball tactic. It's the same thing that James says here. Excuse me, you belong to God. He's good. He's hot blast. He's telling you to come to him. Don't go to anybody else. He's the ultimate source of wisdom. He knows everything. Everything you ever do, he knows it all, all wrapped up in one nice little package. And you need something, come to him. And when he comes to him, he loves you. He's going to pour it out on you. What in the world are you doing? Listen to the evil one. I don't know. And see, what happens is it, it causes a delay in you coming to God for the wisdom you need so that you will make it through the trial with joy and maintaining that positive witness. But it caused a delay and you keep it up and you refuse to go to God, in essence, it's a backhanded way saying, this is a lie. I'm not going to go to God because he's not going to deliver. What's the use? So you got tricked, same tactic from the very get-go, to doubting God and ultimately calling him a liar. All right? And that's what James says, what in the world are you doing? I mean, Who do you think the one is suggesting to us in the midst of our trial that God is no good? He won't meet your needs. He doesn't care about you. He's not going to give you any wisdom. He is playing cat and mouse with you. He is trying to torture you. He doesn't love you. In fact, if he loved you, you wouldn't be going through this trial. Do you think that's coming from the Holy Spirit? No. It's called, the, Paul says, the flaming darts of doubt from the evil one. And James says, don't do this. Don't fall for this. Don't listen to Just trust in God. Do what Job did. Job chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. When Job... Uh, did anybody notice that Job had a few problems? Had a couple trials come along his way? <laughs> he lost it all, man. In one day, not over a course of a time, not even in one year, one month. In one day, he lost all his money, all his kids, his possession. And here's his support system. Listen to what his helpmate said. His wife said, oh, by the way, curse God and die. That's a pretty bad day. And so what was Job's response? He got up, he tore his robe, shaved his head, he fell to the ground in worship. Worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'm going to depart. The Lord gave and the Lord taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Listen, but see, we, we, we usually stop there. Keep reading. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Do you know how you sin with your mouth by charging God with wrongdoing? Oh, I would never do that as a Christian. I would. Really? Do you know how you do it? Flip it around. How could have Job sinned by causing God with wrongdoing? In his trial, if he would have listened to his wife and cursed God and says, you don't know what you're doing. I'm not only not going to go to you for wisdom, but there's no rhyme or reason for this. This is not good. You don't care about me. You've left me hanging high and dry. How could you do this to me? That's called sinning with your mouth. You know why? Because you are attacking the character of God and saying he doesn't know what in the world he's doing. How did Job make it through his trial, which is worse than anything we could ever shake a stick at? And one day, he worshiped God with an attitude of, I trust him. What's he also say? So a great verse uh, in Job, I forget where it's at. He says, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. I don't care what happens to me on the outside in this world. By the way, did you know that God never promised us a rose garden this side of heaven? Did you know that heaven comes later? Did you know this is this messed up version we're currently living in? And the fact that he treats us as well as he does is amazing. okay but as if life is supposed to be heavenly perfect before we get to heaven and then shake a fist at God when something doesn't work out. It's crazy. It's nuts. He's never said that. He's not reneging on a promise. He says, you seek me first, my kingdom and my righteousness. I'll take care of you. And he said, be perfect. Oh, but by the way, when you go through the trials, I'm going to turn them all around for good. And if you need any kind of wisdom in between, come to me. Don't stop coming to me. I never get tired of it. I love you. And I'm going to pour it out on you. Yeah. What did he do wrong? to deserve us doubting him and doubting his character. is crazy. So who do you think that's coming from? Where do you think it's coming from? Yeah, exactly. Because he wants us to join uh, with him, shaking a fist at God. And sure enough, if you read the rest of Job's account, turn there, Job 42. God delivered on his promise. Okay, we usually talk about how it began, but let's take a look at how it ended. Book of Job. Okay, for those of you seeking employment, book of Job, very encouraging book. So, but, uh, Book of Job, let's take a look at there. 42, it should be at the very end there. Ooh, hey, you guys are catching on, man. This is awesome. 42, and um, now, so Job uh, gets right with God, and he, he was just even he was like, man, I'm sorry, even uh, thought about questioning you, God, or anything. And then verse 10, let's take a look at the rest of the story. Okay, verse 10, 42. says, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him what? Prosperous again. In fact, he didn't just like give you equal. What did he do? He gave him twice as much as he had before. Okay, just trust him. You're on this journey, but it's a good journey. And you're not like, going to come out on top. You're going to come out even better than you were before. Just trust him. Okay, twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him Before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had uh, uh, brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Now, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life, what? More than the first. He had this time uh, 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. His first daughter was named Jemima, made this awesome syrup for pancakes. Yeah, wrong one. Uh, the second, Keziah. You always wonder where that name came from right there. Uh, Keziah. And the third one, uh, Karen Hapuk. And uh, nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father uh, granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Now, after this, Job lived 140 years. Listen to this. And I seen on the cake. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. Can I translate that for you? Man, Job had it going. Job had a great life. There was a stretch in there. Don't necessarily know exactly how many years. It was rough. But he trusted God. And the point when he was starting to crack, he even repented of that. Ooh, why would I even begin to think about doubting you, God? And sure enough, it was all meant for good. God knows what he's doing, okay? Just trust him. Don't doubt. What's the opposite of doubt? Trust. Okay, it's a phrase I say that like this. I didn't say, God, you did it. I call it, just take God at His Word. I'm not making it up. He's the one that told me. If I seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, I don't got to worry about what I'm going to eat, drink, or where He's going to provide. If I have a concern, I don't need to worry. I don't need to be anxious. I just present it to God in prayer and request and enjoy some peace. Woohoo, yeah. I didn't make that up. That was not some self-help book. That wasn't man's doing. That's from God. Trust him. Don't doubt it. He said it. Don't you think he can deliver? And that's what he's saying. And yet we say it's so hard to trust in God. Oh, I just don't know how to trust in God. It's just so, what? I love this. Think of what we do all the time. We don't doubt, complete trust, we don't even think about it. And these are things that have nothing to do with God every single day. Listen to this. Many of us will trust a school teacher to teach our kids, who most of us have never probably even met, we, we trust a pilot to fly us in a plane 30,000 feet in the air that we've never even seen. We go to doctors whose names we can't pronounce and whose degrees we've never verified, and they give us prescriptions we can't even read. And then without question, we take it to a pharmacist we've never even seen who gives us containers of chemicals we've never even heard of, and we go home and we take them with instructions we don't even understand, and we can't trust God? <laughs> what? No wonder we don't have joy. No wonder we're being, what did James say? We're being tossed to and fro. We're doing the opposite of what James says to do. He who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he's going to receive anything from the Lord. He's a double minded man, unstable in all he does. This is a cool word. It's uh, don't be a dipsukos, okay? Dipsukos. And it means double souled. You're two minded. In other words, you're, you're, you're thinking doubly. You're, oh, it's God. No, it's the world. Oh, it's God. No, it's the world. You're a dipsukos. Don't do that. Here's what you get. He says, you're going to be, if, you, if you're double-minded like that, okay, you make, make up your mind. What was the great charge with Joshua? How long are you going to waver between two depi- opinions? If God is God, serve him. If Baal's Baal, serve him. Don't do this double-minded baloney stuff. Make up your mind. And that's what James says. Don't be one of those people, I can't wake up. I do not the up. He says, listen, you're going to be a dipsukos, and here's what you get. You're going to be unstable. It's the Greek word, katastatus, and it means unsettled, inconstant, or restless. And so he gives us your choice. Listen, come on. Just trust God. It's right before you, Christian, in the midst of even a trial. Just go to him. He wants to give you wisdom. You can keep on having that joy or don't trust him. And you're going to be, here, here, here's something to look forward to. You're going to be unstable, unsettled, restless, tossed to and fro, all messed up in all your ways, he says. It says it right there. All he does. No wonder you can't enjoy God's peace or joy. You, you, you're, you're a dipsuchos. Make up your mind. Who's God? One guy says this, he says, double-minded people have a sort of external commitment to religion, to Christianity, to God, but sometimes it's not true devotion, which means sometimes, maybe, it's not true salvation. I suppose there are some believers who could have a moment when they acted like an unbeliever with that kind of doubt, but the idea here is one who has not made a complete commitment to God. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress calls this Mr. Facing Both Ways, okay? Psalm twelve two speaks of a double heart, which the Lord will judge. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the undecided person. A person who knows there's a God, believes in the existence of a God, but hasn't made a commitment. He is unstable, not in some of his ways, but in all of his ways, which indicates his spiritual condition is generally outside the kingdom. He can't handle the trials of life. He's just blown all over the place. He's batted around by the storms of life. He would like to come to God to be able to sort it out, but he hasn't made enough commitment to God. He doesn't have a genuine, true, saving faith. Or if indeed a believer did fall in this category, listen, he slipped so far as to be acting at this point like a non-believer, doubting God. And listen, God does not reward doubt. Well, I came to him and I, I, I was asking him for wisdom. I didn't get nothing. Did you really or did you come to him with doubt? You go to him. You take him at his word. He's God. Don't question his character. Don't question his ability. God, here it is. You know the situation. Uh, here's what your word says. I don't know how the answer now, but I know you're going to provide it at the right time. Thank you, Jesus. Woo, looking forward to it. Might come in one minute. Might come in one second. Might come in 10 days. I don't know, but you're going to deliver it. No doubt whatsoever. Sure enough, every single time God provides. How are you coming to him? And if you come to him, even if you are a Christian, guess what the fruit of that is? Hey, a rotten life. And you know what? It's not God's fault. It's yours. You refuse to trust him. You're doubting him. Your life is going to stink. You're going to have instability at every turn. You're not going to have that abundant Christ Christ came to give you. You're not going to experience that uh, uh, constant joy to be that constant positive witness for Jesus. And it's not God's fault. It's yours. The issue in this text is not God's ability or his character. It's his child's lack of faith in questioning God. James says you need to present your request in a trusting attitude, in an expression that uh, uh, does not hesitate or vacillates between faith and unbelief, and it will be given to him. Okay, Don't doubt God. Just take him at his word. I don't care how bad the situation is. God knows what he's doing. If you need something, he'll give it to you right when you need it most. He's always on time. Did you notice that? He's never late and he doesn't have a plan B and he never has to say, oops, sorry. He knows what he's doing. Trust him. Close with one of my favorite illustrations of this. Just trust God. I don't care how bad it is. You don't need to lose your joy. His name's Hein Phong. Shortly after Vietnam fell to the communists, uh, Hein was arrested and accused of aiding and abetting the Americans. He was in and out of prison for several years. So during one long jail term, the sole purpose of his jailers was to indoctrinate him against the West, and especially against democratic ideals and the Christian faith. So they, they cut him off from reading anything in English, and he was restricted to uh, communist propaganda in French or Vietnamese. Uh, and this daily overdose of the writings of Marx and Engels began to take his toll on him. And Heine actually began to buckle. He began to doubt under the onslaught. And he said, true story, he says, maybe, he thought, Maybe I have been lied to. What was the first tactic that happened to you? Doubt. Did God really say? And so they cracked him, and he began to doubt. Maybe I have been lied to. Maybe God does not exist. This is a Christian. Maybe God does not exist. Maybe my whole life has been governed by lies. Maybe the West has deceived me. And the more he thought, the more he moved towards a decision. Finally, he made up his mind. He determined, true story, that when he had wakened the next day, he would not pray anymore or ever think of his Christian faith ever again. Well, the next morning, he was assigned to clean the latrines of the prison. And it was the most dreaded chore in the camp, shunned by everybody. And so with much distress, he began his awful task. And he was cleaning out a tin can filled to overflowing with toilet paper. His eye, though, all of a sudden caught what he thought was English printed on one piece of paper. And so he hurriedly washed it off and he slipped it into his pocket, planning to read it that night. Not having seen anything in English for such a long time, he anxiously waited for a free moment. And under his mosquito net that night, after his roommates had fallen asleep, true story, he pulled out a small flashlight, he shined it on the damp piece of paper, and he read on the top corner of it Romans chapter 8. Literally, he was trembling with shock. He began to read this, of all things. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us... Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he read and it says here he wept he knew his Bible and he had not seen one for so long and not only that listen he knew there was not a more relevant passage of conviction and strength for one who is on the verge of surrendering to the threat of evil the very day he says I'm never going to think of God again he cried out to God asking for forgiveness for this would have been the first day in years he was not going to pray Evidently, God had other plans. Listen to this. The next day, Hein asked the camp commander if he could uh, clean the latrine again. He volunteered. (laughs) He continued with his chore on a regular basis because he had discovered that some official in the camp was using the Bible as toilet paper. And so each day, Hein picked up a portion of scripture, cleaned it off, and added it to his nightly devotional reading. And this way he retrieved a significant portion of the Bible and later Heine was released through an equally miraculous set of circumstances. He escaped the country to Thailand and he came here to America where he shared this true story as God's child. That really happened. Here's what I get out of that. Whether you locked yourself out of a car in a parking lot, whether people have somehow caused you pain, or guess what? Sometimes God allows some really strong difficulties. Whether you're behind the enemy lines of a communist prison Can. If you're a child of God, He loves you. He's going to take care of you. He knows everything. Stop vacillating. Stop doubting. Just trust Him. And He'll give you everything that you need. He'll turn whatever it is you're going through. There's something absolutely fantastic. There's no reason that you can not have that joy and no reason for you to not keep being that positive witness for Jesus. You just got to come to Him. And don't doubt that he's going to deliver. Why? Because he's a hot blast God. He's generous. He loves us. He's going to give you more than you need. And if just like Joe found out, give it some time because it might take some time. You stick with him. You will always come out on top. You will actually become stronger, more prosperous spiritually than when you first entered into it, if you don't doubt. Amen. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's gonna happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though He already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so, out of love and mercy, God gave us something called His law, or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law, to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one, says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay? And if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar, okay? The, the, another commandment says, you shall not steal, okay? Uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, That's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, In your heart, you wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included. And that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor,